I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm here today at the lovely RHS flower show Tatton Park. It's a beautiful afternoon and people are wandering around just giddy with the plant purchases they've made and it seems like everyone has either an ice cream in their hand or a nice cold glass of Pims. The park is absolutely buzzing with activity and who can blame them? There's exciting show gardens and dozens of nursery displays drawing garden lovers from near and far. It's also the last flower show we'll be covering on the podcast this summer. And so I can't wait to bring you along to experience some of my favourite parts of the show, all while putting them in context with the trends from both Chelsea and Hampton Court. We'll be speaking with young designers like Camelia Hayes and Nathan Webster, checking out the new sensory long border displays and taking in the extraordinary RHS nocturnal pollinator experience. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Jenny Lavelle. One of the standout features of Tatton is the Young Designer Competition. The competition offers budding designers the chance to showcase their talent to a large audience and introduce fresh and creative ideas to the horticultural establishment. Camelia Hayes is one of these young designers. She's competing this year with her Seeking Resilience Garden. It's a pocket park that explores the joys of living with nature. Earlier today, I caught up with Camelia to hear the story behind her garden and what it's been like to exhibit at Tatton. So I'm here on the Seeking Resilience Garden with its designer, Camelia Hayes. Camelia, congratulations on your garden. It is beautiful. Thank you so much. And as a fan of the podcast, it's kind of a dream come true. I'm not going to lie. So <laughs> it's a bit surreal. So yeah, I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> Such lovely, gentle, soft planting. It feels like you've been designing for years. How did you get into designing? That's a massive compliment because it is my second year of being a landscape architecture student. I actually was a high jumper before and I was an admin assistant whilst I did that. So yeah, I'm new to the field and I think one of the things that I love is established planting, ecological succession. So I really try to give this feel of an established garden that looks quite relaxing and calming. What drew you to garden design? That's quite a varied career you've got there. Yes, I know. Yeah, my name's Camelia, so you'd think I've been doing it since I was born. But yeah, it took me a while to finally find my like true calling, I think. I think I've always loved nature and then I wanted to kind of create spaces that would really improve people's lives. I had a really tough time as a high jumper, you know, it was I was very clumsy, so always getting injured and I found refuge in very tranquil spaces. And I also started noticing inequalities. I moved to Liverpool and I noticed 
notice that people don't have accessibility to parks and if they don't have a car they can't go to a national trust so really wanted to create spaces for people in an inner city where they could feel like themselves or get some resilience so that's really where this began. Can we just talk about the elements in this garden that reflect well-being and mental well-being so how is that expressed in the garden could you go through it? Yeah so with anxiety you often want to be in a space that has a bit of privacy but also you can see you have some visibility as well so i've got a lot of grasses uh, just champs here throughout the garden and they are different heights and so they give this around the seating area it's a bit taller and it gives this kind of enclosure and this kind of safe feeling but at the front you can kind of see out and yeah feel that safety as well i've also got a water feature as well because if you have intrusive thoughts the sound of water can really block out those negative thoughts so the sound of water gently trickling by is like another way to include that mental health theme as well. It's a resilient garden so we're talking about the resilience of plants as well as the resilience of people and their spirit and their mental well-being so can you describe the resilience of the plants what Mm. plant choices did you make for this? Yeah so behind us we've got a feature wall full of native plants from the UK sort of plants that can handle a drier substrate and they naturally self-seed so in my alleyway in Liverpool I have snapdragons growing and they're a cultivar and it was really crazy to see them growing in my alleyway I thought like where have they come from they shouldn't be here so the wall plants are really resilient and then I've got this grassland plant community and so the idea of that is that it can be kind of maintained as a whole they all have the same soil conditions and they kind of take care of themselves and I like this idea of plant communities that they're quite dynamic so they will change over time but they will be here because I've picked them for the right conditions. Whilst my garden isn't looking at drought tolerant planting specifically it's looking at resilient plant communities and then combining it with the resilience of mental health and how so many people it seems to be struggling with uh, poor health. So my mom was diagnosed with cancer last year. She won't be cured unfortunately because of the type of cancer she has but she is in remission and I think during that time I realised how many people are going through a hard time and actually were coping really well from the on the outside so many of my friends parents are actually unwell and I had never I never knew until my mom got unwell and they opened up to me so that really struck me and I started thinking about how can I provide spaces for people like that who might be coping on the outside but really need somewhere to rest earlier on you were just mentioning about how you want to design places for people and there's a lovely mix here between the nature that you clearly love and adore but also urban spaces could you talk through some of those choices that you made in design i think creating a space for nature and not having a negative footprint is such a beautiful thing and i'd like to encourage people to do that more to start thinking about designing for themselves but also designing for nature and how you can benefit both yourself and others through doing that I've also got a lot of weeds in the garden as well. The idea behind that was they kind of show you, I think I've been surprised sometimes when a weed pops up because I'm like, oh, it actually looks really good there. Like the teasel looks really beautiful and I've kind of encouraged myself to keep it in. in. And I think the gardeners and us want to pull it out. But like if you can resist cutting it back, having that benefit, you know, the sculptural seed heads in winter and then seeing the goldfinches move in, it can have a real beautiful impact on your garden and yourself. There's lots of that kind of inspiration that people can take away from this garden. But it's a practical takeaway. How can, what bits of this garden can people recreate at home? 
I love the feel of naturalistic planting, but I also really love modern architecture and clean lines. So for me in this garden, I wanted to say to people, like, you can embrace that natural wilder feel, but still have like edited planting and then use like a really strong background, which makes the naturalistic planting pop. When the, the sun comes through, these amazing shadows project the kind of the textures and the shapes of the plants. You've got teasel, you've got sangasol, but all time high. It really breaks up the garden. And I think I've really enjoyed playing around with plants with different stem colors. So we've got the little rust typhinia seedlings which have this really pink color and then you've got the fennel as well it's a bronze fennel that has like a purpler tint to it as well so I like bringing in little surprises like you kind of walk through my boardwalk and you'll see the carex gray eye with their little spiky balls and it's you know sometimes if you add something in small numbers it really makes it stand out and is, is a little bit of a surprise element which I think is really fun. There's so much wildlife in the garden, but the buzz is not just coming from inside the garden. Everybody on the outside looking in wants to take home this garden. It's a really popular one, and it's a very well-deserved medal for Camellia. Like the Young Designer competition, this year's new Sensory Long Borders offer a wide array of designers the opportunity to exhibit their craft here at RHS Tatton. We stopped by several of the whimsical displays to hear what they're all about. So I'm Hallie and this is my border, A Pocket of Peace. This border is about the technology in our day-to-day -day lives and how it obstructs our interaction with nature and how we just don't get out into the garden enough and we're always on our phones and yeah, just breaking through that really. The theme of this year was sensory, so we really wanted to engage like touch and smell and just overall like the wind moving or the bamboos are really nice and obviously the bath that we have at the end creates a nice audible sound of relaxation. Yeah, we just really went for the relaxation vibe and just wanted to emphasise that. <laughs> So going along the relaxation theme, it's quite well known that blues and softer colours sort of make you feel more relaxed, opposed to reds, which are quite associated with like anger and stuff. So we wanted to keep it quite soft, like lush greens and some cooler tones, which, yeah, bring you back to relaxation and just peace, really. We've got some daylilies, we've got some salvias, we've got quite a few agapanthus, some black in black, and then we've got some white shorter ones to create the layering. We've got some thalictriums, some splendid white ones, and we've got some dahlias as well. Just really different shapes and spikes, a lot of different heights, and we've got some angel wings as well, just to create that texture and the, the nice soft leaves, you know. Oh, it's... It's been everything. It's been it's been exciting. It's been scary. It's been it's been really fun. I think I'll definitely do it again. Like my friends that I did it with as well, we're so excited to enter again in something else, and we're just really really lucky to have had a chance to show, to put on a display. Really, yeah. It's been difficult weather though this week. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emma Jane Blair and I'm Natasha Lloyd and our long border is called Seeing Through the Senses. So the border is designed to be an accessible sensory border with lots of tactile plants, lots of plants that you can smell and plants that will create sound as well just to give a full multi-sensory experience. 
So it's predominantly a yellow and purple planting scheme punctuated by silver and grey and sort of blue-green foliage and lots of grasses for a really light, airy feel. And the yellow and purple, we've gone for those colours because they're on opposite ends of the colour wheel in order to create a high contrast. And that's harmonised by the sort of subtle grey-green and the blue-greys that just soften that contrast. Another thing that we've done in this garden to make it accessible is to use um, wider cultivars, quite large shrubs, in order to act as a form of navigation, especially when the light fades. So they give you that twilight glow that enables people to kind of move around the garden quite safely. So we've used Budley or White Chip doing that. Not only is it scented and has that texture of the flower heads, but it also, when the light fades, they really, really shine out. So you can kind of navigate your way around the garden. I think it's just been a fantastic experience. It's been our first show garden and it's been a really wonderful experience. Quite a learning curve as well. I think we've learned a lot about which plants to use and not to use in the future. But having the feedback from particularly from the members of the public, which has been so positive, has been a real joy. Hi, I'm Claire Eden and my long border is plants that you want to touch and some that you really shouldn't. So the border is supposed to be a tactile border. So I've got fluffy plants, plants with soft leaves, plants that emit aromas when you stroke them. But I've also got things like the Eryngium, sea hollies, which are really spiky and you shouldn't touch. And also some things like euphorbia. I've got two different kinds of euphorbia in the border, which obviously have the poisonous sap. So you might want to wear gloves when you're handling those too. So basically, I think I picked a colour scheme first to sort of tie it together. So I, I had some ideas of different fluffy grasses and things like the statues that had the fluffy leaves. And then I was like, well, what else can work with it to tie it all together? So then I was thinking about different shapes in terms of the foliage and flower forms. So I, I wanted to get a real contrast between those. So it, it wasn't just a tactile textures, but also visual textures. So. Lots of the different plants have, some have got tall spikes, some are little round spiky balls, some are sort of dainty, airy flowers. So we've got the Santolina, which again, it is a very gray sort of little plant, but when you stroke it, it, it really makes your hands smell afterwards. And we've got this Picea glaucoglobosa, which is a little tiny spruce, and it's got this really intense sort of bluey gray foliage, needles, and it is really spiky. <laughs> you know, as I'm touching it now, it actually hurts. <laughs> this is a really strange, kind of a succulent. Orostache's Chinese hat is actually something that I found at the nursery and was just so taken with it, I thought I've got to include it. And it feels really weird and rubbery. I mean, it looks a bit like a brain, I think and then it has this really strange rubbery texture. And I just, when I went to the nursery, I just couldn't stop touching it. I was just like, this is really weird. I've got to have it in my border. <laughs> I'm hoping people can see the sort of naturalistic style of planting about it. So all the planting isn't in blocks of color. It's very much in like drifts and even in individual plants, which I know quite often you're always told, oh, plant in groups of three and five. Well, I haven't on this border. They sort of pop up out of the grasses. so it's. It's very much like a matrix of sepia tenusima with then these other things erupting from it. So it gives you this really dynamic texture, which I really, really like. I have to say it's been really stressful. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to challenge myself. I've been a gardener for years and I've never had the balls to do it. 
and then just thought, you know what, let's just give it a try. It's an experience, but you know, I, I'm really proud of it. Thanks to everyone who shared. The Longboarders has been an absolute star of this year's Tatton. It's so important to give people the opportunity to cut the turf and it's doing a great job. They're great, go see them. <laughs> One of the most talked about gardens this year is the RHS Nocturnal Pollinator Experience and there's a good reason why. Last week we caught up with the designer Sharon Hockenhall and digital artist Georgia Tucker to learn more about this garden meets immersive art spectacular. My name is Sharon Hockenhall and I am a garden designer based in the Northwest. My name is Georgia Tucker and I'm an immersive artist and I create different experiences using technology and I'm based in Birmingham. The Nocturnal Pollinators Garden is all about ways that you can attract uh, moths and offer them a habitat and to be able to sustain them within your garden spaces. So I'm quite practical in terms of the garden side and then it sort of moves into Georgia's. Yeah, so then my area of the kind of the tent garden is going into nighttime. So I want the viewer to kind of journey from Sharon's beautiful kind of garden, which is what you should have at night in your own space to attract moths and then they go into the actual kind of behind the scenes almost of what a moth feels and the beauty of moths and kind of a moment of serenity within the Tatton Park Flower Show where hopefully you know visitors will completely switch off and immerse themselves in moths. Well there's recent research which has come, so I'm going to use a pun now, it's come to light, <laughs> um, which actually shows moths as quite amazing pollinators. And because they're out at night, we're not really that aware of them. So I think with that kind of research, that's showing that they're much more efficient, they will pollinate flowers much more quickly, and they also visit a lot of plants that the daytime pollinators will visit, but they will also go to ones that they don't. So they're actually really critical in the world of pollination. And I think, you know, with everything around us in terms of the climate, in terms of habitat loss, in terms of light pollution, in terms of pesticides, you know, we really need to give them a bit of a helping hand. Yeah, definitely. I think from the immersive experience side, I was doing some research into kind of like butterflies being called a kaleidoscope and that's because of the beauty of them. But I don't think that moths have, there's like almost a taboo, like moths, you know, chew holes in your clothes or they're a bit flappy and people don't feel comfortable around moths. So I wanted to create this experience where it really makes moths seem calming and beautiful. And then that highlights that they are really important as well. So just by immersing people in that, they can really feel what it's like to be surrounded by them without actually being surrounded by yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. So when you first walk in on the left, there's kind of hanging material, which adds some sort of texture and layers because moths wings are actually very layered. They're almost like scales. Um, so I wanted to show that through the different layers of projection through the material. And then all three projection screens have like kaleidoscope of different moth wings growing from this amber light, because I wanted to show that amber light makes moths more fertile and is, is very important for moths, like warmer colors. And for me, I'm quite passionate about showing that human health as well is better with 
warmer lights and there's a lot of research about blue lights being damaging for human health so we're more similar with moths than you think we are and then as you go around the experience there's like a, a chrysalis kind of womb in the center which is glowing red and there's more material with some flowers from Sharon's garden that almost because they're dried they look like moths sat in the netting above and then as you walk around there's a, a moth painted onto the projection with the kaleidoscope coming through kind of building on the moth experience and taking it into our own sort of back gardens. There are a number of plants that will really help. Um, so I'm calling them kind of a lure plant and they are plants that have a very heady nighttime scent. So things like jasmine, evening primrose, uh, there's night scented stock. There are a few shrubs in there as well, Escalonia, even privet. has got a lovely scent. So that will attract those moths. Once your moths are in the garden, you know, we can offer them lots of nectar through the range of perennials, sort of echinacea and verbenas, nepetas and salvias. So that will kind of give them that sustenance through the night. And then when we bring the moths into our garden, we also have to sort of understand that for them to, to survive, they have to have somewhere to lay their eggs for the caterpillars and then for the pupae to develop. So we do have to, you know, be slightly more tolerant of those holes that appear in leaves and providing sort of specimens that will host them, that will provide that food source for them. And what we're kind of finding through research is that they do tend to go for a lot of the more native uh, plants and specimens, you know, things like hazel and hawthorn and beech, things like nettles and bramble, those kind of wilder sort of plants, which also feature in the garden. And then on another side of that is to create shelter. So we have things like hedges and evergreen shrubs, which a lot of people already have in the gardens, which is brilliant. But also I've been trying to create some ornamental habitats. So looking at ways in which we can use materials that come from our garden. So for example, when we cut down all our perennials in the spring, you know, the stems actually are still sort of rigid, you know, and these are like perfect little places for all kinds of creatures and bugs to sort of, to hibernate and to sleep and to take cover. So it's actually ways of using that and keeping them within your garden, but actually putting them and storing them in an attractive way. And then one last element, which is sort of linking back to George's inside, is the lighting. I've also picked up on the fact that, you know, it's the warmer light colour that is better for moths because the bright white light will disorientate them. They have a, an inbuilt magnetic field and that light will just send them a little bit crazy. So it distracts them from actually getting about the job doing that pollinating. So the less sort of bright lights we can have in our gardens would be so much better for them. Thanks there to Sharon and Georgia. Wildlife has been such a big theme this show season. You've got the RHS Wildlife Garden at Hampton Court and the Royal Entomological Society Garden at Chelsea. Beautiful gardens, and this is another example of that. But this garden takes a slightly different twist to it by focusing on nocturnal pollinators, such an important pollinator, but quite often overlooked. Another theme that keeps cropping up at Tadden is the idea of turning off tech. We saw this a bit with the call from Sharon and Georgia to minimise our use of white light in the garden, and then again with the Pocket of Peace long border, and also the show garden, Jay Parker's Chain to Tech, which is a direct response to our overuse of technology. 
So for our final feature of the day, we thought it fitting to delve a bit deeper into the topic. I caught up with Nathan Webster, designer of the Off the Grid Garden, to get the behind the scenes story of his design. So I'm here with Nathan Webster on his garden, award-winning garden, Off the Grid. Hi, Nathan. Hello, hello. Describe this garden for us. So it's a really naturalistic garden. The main inspiration was actually Delamere Forest. So it's very, very similar to what you see in the forest of Delamere in Cheshire. It's a very similar sort of planting, really tall pine trees from metre and a half to all the way to nine metres. So it gives you a lot of depth. It's not really, really dense as you see as a normal show garden, but we wanted to do something different and tried to show the naturalistic side of the actual forest and not, not the show garden that you always see. So it's not really full of plants. It's very limited. There's only two varieties of ferns. We've got foxglove or digitalis, um, which just spices of purple colours throughout the garden. We've also got nettles, only small clumps of nettles and brambles as well, just scattered throughout the planting. It just gives you a little bit more of a naturalistic look to the space. Then we've got a cabin where you can also live in, so we've got a really nice dark cladded cabin which is sunken into the floor by half a metre. We've got really nice bifold doors with a large window on the side, just give it plenty of light. And where it's actually sunken down, it's all retained by logged walls, but we actually made off-site for about five or six months. Um, they've all been pre-made and been made with moss, soil. We planted nettles and fern in there just to make it really, really natural as much as we can, so it looks like it's been here for years. It really does. And the view from here, we're mm. here in this log cabin, yeah. is incredible because yeah. we're lower down, we're right in the middle of the planting. Yeah. Given that it's a forest, it's so open, it's so light. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, Nathan, how do you garden a forest? It's a very, quite a difficult answer, really. We actually had a conversation with Forest England about the different species that you really do have to use to make that really, really natural look. And even the spacing of the plants of how we've actually planted them, having gaps in the planting, what make it look like a forest, when it, obviously it's not a forest, it's a garden. The main inspiration, really, what I put in the client brief for all the judges was it's a small space within a bigger environment in the surrounding areas is a forest. So it's a small space within a bigger, a bigger space. So we've, we've even mounded a few areas so it looks like the desire lines where people, you'll see it in forests where people have had a shortcut and they've cut through the ferns and they've had a little bit of a, like a groove in the paths, the grooves in the mulch. So we've elevated the garden just to create them desire lines where they've cut through the space so it looks like it's been here and it's been tread on. People have used it for years and years and years. Yeah, it's almost like the fact you can't tell where the gardening is mm. shows how good it is because exactly, it yeah. looks so natural. Exactly, yeah. This is called off-grid. It's called off-the-grid, yeah. But it's not a call to be off-the-grid, is it? What's your message from the garden? Um, the message is really there's certain ways you can live off-grid. I've displayed something which you're living off the earth. You don't need to be plugged into the mains. You could be hundreds of miles away. Mm. You just need sunlight and your ground water. Like we've got borehole pumps here where you get natural water and there's filters, there's irrigation, attenuation tanks, what sort all that water, all the dirty water. So all the water you are using, it's all getting recycled. And all the other spaces what we've got, again, it's just the light. You've got to have a lot of light as well. So it's picking the right place for it as well. It's kind of just 
like I say, just jump into the forest and pick a spot. It's got to be right, right for it. It really feels like it's no sacrifice to go off grid here. Yeah, yeah. But it's you just kind of saying, well, there are ways to take this ethos mm -hmm. and apply it to your life without it being a sacrifice. It yeah. can be absolutely aspirational, really. So there's been quite a few little gardens and borders all seeming to chime into this idea that we should be moving away from technology. Do you yeah. feel like you're part of that movement? It's a bit of a hybrid role, really, where we're using obviously the natural space where there is like there's no technology whatsoever in that space, and then you come into this modern area where it's full of technology with like the solar panels and all like the timing with all the, the Bluetooth with everything like that with the with the borehole and there's a lot a lot of technology in this building. You're kind of using tech in the best way than just wasting technology. If you know what I mean. The young designer category, such an important category. Yeah. What's this experience meant for you? It's been really difficult because I've been I've been asked to do something what's never really been done before this sort of show. I had the vision in there already, but it's been absolutely amazing. I've enjoyed every single second, even from filling out the forms, getting all the plant passports together, even getting the logistics sorted for the big trees, getting everything organised. I've actually really, really enjoyed it. Not just the design process, just the organisation, the managing, 10 or 15 lads on site asking millions of questions. It's been stressful, don't get me wrong, but I've loved it. I've absolutely loved yeah. it. It was really, really good. And you are the Young Designer of the Year. I know. Local lad. I know, local lad, That's yeah. got to be special. Your dad's yeah. here helping you. All your yeah. mates help you build it. Exactly, yeah. This is a very personal thing for you, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Well, the whole design is personal to me. This, I basically lived in this space at the weekends with my mates, with my families, living in basically Delamere Forest on our bikes, having a good time. I've had this vision for years and it's only... I've been asked to do the Young Designers quite a few years, but I've actually turned it down because we weren't ready. I was a bit too young, really, to do something like this. And they asked me last year and I just took it with both hands and just went for it. I said to me, Dad, if we're doing it, we're doing it properly and we're really, really going for it. And we did, we went for it. We really did. You really did. Congratulations, it's incredible. Thank you very much, thank you. I do actually want to live here. I know, it's for me, I, I live here as well. <laughs> it's designed for me. still here sat on the Ossogrid garden. I'm just having a look around and you can just smell the woodland. It's so fresh and lush. I can just see the planting over there that he's done in his cotton steel planters and pak choy. Looks delicious. Lots of log piles, loads and loads of wildlife in. And just over behind me, there's an upturned tree, which reminds me a lot of the upturned tree in the Centrepoint Garden, Cleve West Centrepoint Garden in Chelsea, which feels a long time ago now. There's a lot of themes that have come through from Chelsea, such as weeds, rewilding, wildlife planting, sustainability planting, ideas that started at Chelsea and then taken through and refined a little bit in Hampton Court with the Wildlife Garden, Town Massey's Resilience Garden. And then here in Tatton, you see those themes, those key horticultural themes being applied practically in people's gardens. Gardens that you can say, yes, I can have that in my garden. And that's the beauty of Tatton. You really can take it home. A little slice of Chelsea, a little slice of Hampton, and a nice Tatton pie. There's been quite a few smaller trends, maybe. We've seen a lot of apples in small spaces, apple trees, espaliers and prune trees in small areas. A lot of resilient trees, so figs, birches, 
rowans, some nice, soft, romantic planting, some lovely, soft pinks coming through, some nice, calm colours. For me, what I'll be taking home is I'll be looking at, again at grasses, just what they can provide in terms of softening planting, spilling over. Maybe I'll put the flowers down for a bit and start looking at my greens. Well, that's about it for today. If you weren't able to see Tatton in person, fear not. You can follow along from home via the BBC's programmes covering the show. Or you can find details and wonderful photos from all the gardens, exhibitions, plant lists and competitions on our website at rhs.org.uk. And before you go, I wanted to send my warmest congratulations to this year's winners. Best Show Garden was won by Constructing Minds by Carolyn Harden and John Jarvis. Young Designer of the Year went to Nathan Webster for his Off the Grid Garden. And Best Terrace and Slim Space Garden was Brickyard by Connell Maguire. That's all for now. So for me, Jenny Lavelle, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.